You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. We're uh, going through the Bible in a year, and this week, as Sarah just said in our video, we're in the book of Luke, uh, just going right through the Bible, book after book, doing an overview sermon of every book of the Bible. My name is Dean. I'm the pastor here. Thanks for joining us this morning. I would love for you to come out Friday night for all the men uh, to our men's gathering at 6.30. I'll be speaking that night to our men, uh, just kind of talking about dude stuff. So come be a part of dude stuff, uh, and come that night as we get a chance to gather together. A couple times a year, we just want to bring the men together uh, just to talk about things that matter and to help us all grow together as uh, men trying to follow the Lord. Uh, as that is a work in progress for all of us as we're trying to attempt to do that. Uh, we'd love for you to join us Friday night as we come together. So I'm gonna pray for us and we'll jump in uh, to the book of Luke and have an overview sermon of this really important book of the Bible telling us much about the life and ministry of Jesus. Father, we are thankful uh, for your word. Uh, we're thankful we have Bibles. What an amazing privilege that we have the words of our God. Uh, so we ask we'll be faithful to that reality. We'll be good stewards of that truth. I ask you with all the churches in our city as they gather today that you allow the name of Jesus to come from every pulpit in our community and that you keep the enemy out of this place and out of our city. Lord, please strengthen us in our faith. Help us to follow Jesus. Lord, we depend on you greatly. We ask you to be with us as we gather in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Luke begins like this, and this is a theme throughout the other Gospels. When we say Gospels, it's the first four books of the New Testament telling the story, the good news of Jesus' life and ministry, his death, his resurrection, and they all are pointing to one common theme, even they all have, as we'll see, they all have their own angles they take, their own focus, their own emphasis, but the one big picture they all hold in common, all four Gospels, is letting the reader know and understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that has come before in their Old Testaments. Like everything that they had been taught and told and their grandparents and great-grandparents had seen and experienced and been promised that all of it is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. When we say things like that God keeps his promises, in the book of 1 Corinthians it says that every promise of God is answered yes in Jesus Christ. So all of God's promises are being fulfilled in the fact of Jesus coming, of him living a perfect life, of him dying for us, rising again, ascending to heaven. And the only promise we await now is for Jesus to return and to make all things new, just as we all sang about a few minutes ago. And here's how it begins. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events, here's the key words, that have been fulfilled. That's the key. Jesus is the fulfillment that have been fulfilled among us just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us, so it also seemed good for me since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed." As I'm telling you what's been fulfilled, what others have written about, my own investigation, Luke's saying to someone named Theophilus, we don't know a ton about him, but someone named Theophilus to help him be certain that Jesus really actually is the one he claimed to be. So we see this now begin to unfold. Mary is now the key. And Matthew, we talked about how Joseph was the focus at the beginning. Here now it's Mary. Mary has an angel appear to her and tell her she's going to be pregnant with the Messiah. I, mean, I can't even imagine what that's like to think about that. And we can't only think about these events at Christmas time. They're critical for all of the Bible, for all of Christian understanding. And Mary responds to this with a song, with praising God, which talking about all of God's promises being fulfilled. And one of the things she says that I think is critical to understand the rest of the book of Luke is verse 52. Talk about this baby who's going to come. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. 
that he's going to put things upside down. Things are going to go out of order and out of sequence to how the world usually functions. It's not the powerful and the proud who are going to receive him. It's the humble and the needy. Those who are poor in spirit, who are aware of their need, who aren't living in pride. He's coming to basically reverse the order of how power functions in this world. He's going to be a king who's not going to come uh, to rule in an earthly sense, but to rule in a heavenly sense and to give his life ultimately for his people. Some theologians believe that's actually the theme verse of Luke. That verse 52, that what, that, what they're explaining what's going to happen there. Then we get to a genealogy. And genealogies can be kind of really boring to read. I get that. And as you go through them, it's like, can we just kind of skim through this really quickly? In Matthew's genealogy, we spent a little bit of time on that a few weeks ago. Uh, it was kind of making the key of Jesus' royal descent, his royal lineage. But here, the genealogy actually traces back to Adam. Chapter 3, verse 38. This is at the very beginning of that genealogy. Talk about Jesus being the son of Adam, the son of God. Then it works through like all of biblical history from Adam that point forward. And as soon after the genealogy is given, making the case that Jesus goes back to Adam, he's immediately taking off into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Here's what it says in chapter four. Then Jesus left the Jordan full of the Holy Spirit and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. Now the scriptures refer to Jesus in the book of Romans as the second Adam. How Adam was our representative and he sinned, and then we proved that we were definitely from him because we sin ourselves too. Jesus is our representative in the fact that he doesn't sin. So here Jesus now goes to be tempted in the wilderness, being led there, and now he's actually acting out that role as the second Adam. Meaning, in his temptation from the devil, he subdues the serpent from Genesis chapter 3 in the way that Adam should have but did not. Where Adam has failed, now Jesus has been victorious. And he definitely is the one who is eligible and proven to be the one described in the lineage. Afterwards, he comes back on the scenes. So now he has you know, made himself worthy of being the Messiah once and for all, subdued the serpent in a way that Adam could not. And it says this, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, Isaiah 61, it's from Luke 4, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to, release, to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up the scroll. This is like such a flex by Jesus here, how he does this gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began by saying to them, and here's that fulfilled word again, today as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. Uh, what a flex. He's in the synagogue. He goes and takes a scroll and reads Isaiah. And he sits down and he's like, it's about me. 
It's about me. Like, I am the fulfillment of all of this. Like, the fulfillment of this, the realization of this promise is sitting right in front of you. He has come to bring healing. But what kind of healing? What kind of freedom from oppression? What kind of sight for the blind? Physical, we will certainly see that happen. But ultimately, spiritual. See, healings begin to take place now after this. Jesus goes out into the community and actually starts healing people from diseases, from blindness, from not being able to walk. We see these amazing things take place. But not everyone gets healed physically, only some people. Now, could Jesus have walked down the street and just declared everybody healed and they would have been fine and never had a disease while they were on this earth? Well, he rose from the grave after he died three days before, so I'm going to go with yes, that he could do that. But not everyone gets healed, and even the people who get healed by Jesus, like physically healed, they still all eventually die as well. So what's happening here? So first, Jesus is acting out his restorative powers. He's giving the people a glimpse of the new creation, of what will actually ultimately come one day when there is a new heaven and there is a new earth and all things are actually made new. When we read things in the Bible, like one day every tear will be wiped from their eyes. Like that's not some kind of play on words. That is a reality. There will be a time and a day when Christ returns when there will be no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more pain. There'll be no more fill in the blank of anything that brings brokenness to this world. It will all be gone forever. We, we look to that. We trust in Christ until then. But what he's doing in these healings, yes, he's having compassion on people. Yes, he's showing his power. Yes, he's acting out his on earth as it is in heaven powers. But he's pointing towards a greater healing that is to come. And that's a spiritual healing. Because everybody who's healed physically isn't always healed spiritually. And ultimately, that's why Jesus came to this earth, was to heal us spiritually. And then one day, all things will be fully healed once and for all. I mean, he says this during the healings, so they're challenging me. He goes, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That that's what this really is all about. That's what this is pointing to. Like, I am the one from Isaiah. I am the one who has the authority, no one else does, to forgive the sins that people have committed against God. And not only am I the one who forgives them, I'm also the one who pays the penalty for them. I mean, think about that for a minute. The one who forgives our sins is also the one who dies for our sins. It's incredible. And then he, we see a major theme throughout Luke that's really important to understand, and we can't even do Luke unless we actually see this like chapter by chapter by chapter inclusion. Sometimes it's really direct, some kind of sort of sprinkled in, and that's a word that he has for the rich, for the wealthy. He says, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your comfort. Woe to you who are now full, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are now laughing, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the false prophets. Now what's going on here? Is it wrong to laugh? Is it wrong to be full from dinner? Is it wrong to have money? That's not necessarily what he's saying here. He's talking about when all of those things simply come from the world. Like when you're filling, when your satisfaction, when your laughter, 
When your idea of happiness only comes from the temporary aspects of the things of this world, and he has a word for those of us, and he says, you need to be careful. Chesterton, writing way back, said this. It may be possible to have a good debate over whether or not Jesus believed in fairies, which we're not going to do that today. It is a tantalizing question. Alas, it is impossible to have any sort of debate over whether or not Jesus believed that rich people were in big trouble. There is too much evidence on the subject. He says it is overwhelming. Like, you're better off debating whether or not Jesus believed in fairies, he says. There's more argument, there's more to be said there than there is whether or not he had a word of major warning for those who were rich. Kevin DeYoung says this, of the four gospel writers, Luke has the most to say about wealth and poverty. He chooses his material and organizes it in such a way that his audience would understand that how you handle your money has everything to do with following Jesus. And then we see it begin to take place throughout the entire, it's like the entire book. And, and not a thing where he just talks about money the whole time, and, but where he sees what it can do to people and wants the people to be made aware. See, in, John, in, John, in our Luke chapter three, John the Baptist explains that repentance, turning from your sins and turning to God from the world is directly tied often to what you do with your money. There, there's a right way to do it and a right way to view it. In chapter eight, uh, we see a number of, of very wealthy women. Uh, they're serving for Jesus' ministry and for his disciples, showing us that there are people that are using their position in life very well. A, a very famous story in chapter 10, the Good Samaritan uh, helps the needy in chapter 10. Here we see the negative examples of really the societal elites ignoring urgent needs right in front of them. In chapter 12, it just keeps going, we meet the rich fool, as the person is called, who lives for himself and trusts in his wealth to save him. To show us if you're a rich man or woman, depending on your riches, that you're in great spiritual danger. We see this story. A ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a common question, how do you get to heaven? Why do you call me good, Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. Here's Jesus trying to help him to understand that the one he's talking to actually is God. So the one he's referring to is the one he needs to worship. Jesus said in John chapter 14, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Here's someone saying, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one's good but God. In other words, here I am. I, I am the way. He goes, you know the commandments. Don't, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Jesus is setting them up because he wants this guy to see that even the best of the rule keepers out there, that it's not enough. And what does the guy say? I've kept all these from my youth. First of all, he just broke a commandment because he's lying, Right? You tell me you've never bared false witness, you've never dishonored your father and mother, like never. When Jesus heard this, he told him, he's like, okay, you still lack one thing, like really good moral person. He goes, sell all you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then 
Then, once you do that, come follow me. After he heard this, he became extremely sad because he was very rich. Seeing that he became sad, Jesus said, how hard is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. There's an old urban legend that there's actually like a little door in Israel that camels would duck down and go under and it was called the eye of the needle. That's actually not true. (laughs) So the actually point of the illustration is as strange as it sounds. Like a camel trying to go through the eye of a needle is that impossible and that radical. He says, those who heard this asked, then who can be saved? He replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. As you know who can be saved, those that God does a work in their life and changes their heart and saves them. That we are fully dependent upon him. So is this prescriptive here? Is this telling us that if you don't go sell all your things that you're not gonna go to heaven? That's not at all what this is saying. This is referring to a particular conversation with a certain person in a certain circumstance, but a principle that applies to all of us. Here is this man going, how do I get to heaven? And he just wants to have a checklist. Jesus cares about his heart. So he goes, well, here's the things I've done. I've, I've, I've done this, I've done that, I've done this. So, so I'm good to go, and so, so I don't lack anything. And Jesus said, okay, how about this? Go, go sell your stuff. Because Jesus knew how important his things were to him. That his money and his wealth was the God in his life. So Jesus isn't going to let, let us have like dual gods. Like co-gods in our life. And here this man was told, okay, I want to see what you really think about me. Go, go sell your stuff. And the man, it says, went away sad, extremely sad, because he was rich. As in other words, no, I'm not going to do that. I mean, how tragic that wealth, which is a good thing, here actually produced sadness. Why? Because it was a God thing. When good things become God things in our life, that is where idolatry begins to take place. And here's what's important. Luke shows evidence in his writing of being well-educated, well-traveled, well-connected, really a cosmopolitan Gentile convert and probably a person who most likely did have a lot of means comparatively to people of his day. He was most likely a physician. Uh, He was very well educated. He was not a poor man writing to poor people. And that's important. Luke is not some person who is bitter towards those who have money or or envious or jealous or a chip on his shoulder. This is not a a person, a a rally screaming about those who have money and and how it's not fair and all those kind of things. This is not what he's doing here. It's much more that Luke is a rich man writing to another rich man and people like him in order to show how those of us who have a lot can truly follow Jesus and be faithful. People call him an evangelist to the rich. And notice I said those of us who have a lot. Don't think anyone in this room is exempt from this category. Don't think this applies to someone else. Because comparatively, if you were able to get in a car this morning and not wear the exact same clothes you wore yesterday and had breakfast this morning, you would apply as somebody who has a lot comparatively to the rest of the world. And what makes this complicated is that no one in the world thinks they're rich 
and everyone thinks they're generous. You ever notice that? Like nobody thinks they're rich. It's always because we define it by some, what somebody else has. Oh, I'm not rich, how, how about those people over there? And then those people over there, oh come on, we're not rich, I, I actually have to work. Like I can't, like how about those people over there? Yeah, I might have a nice salary, but I have to actually I have to work. Like they're the ones, and those ones are like, oh man, you think we have it, whoo! You know what I mean, houses that guy owns? And it just keeps going, no one thinks they're rich. And as Christians, we have sadly allowed this messaging of the world to infiltrate us where we have made it almost okay to be jealous and envious and judgmental and condemning towards those who have a lot. That is not the way of a Christian. That is not the way of a Christian. We have allowed politics and our view of economics to justify us being spiteful, jealous, envious, all of those things. In the scriptures, it is not telling us that it's wrong to have money or resources. What's happening is it's letting us know that those who have those things face a unique danger, a unique danger in their lives because it can allow you to either one, be wrongly confident in yourselves, or two, foolishly trust in what you have. Wrongly confident, or foolishly trust. And if that is your life now, there's not a word of condemnation from you from the Bible, there's just a loving warning. Because Luke says you're in for a rude awakening at the end of the age, because everything's gonna be turned upside down. The humble and the lowly will be exalted. They'll be lifted up and the arrogant rich will be cast down. Think about this for a minute. I mean, this is not a sermon on money, it's a sermon on Luke, and Luke covers it the entire time. Think about what money does to people. Again, money's a good thing, not a bad thing. But think about it, he's God's, Jesus isn't being crazy here, he's being as rational as one can think. Think of, think of people you know that it, money's changed them. And by change them, I don't mean it changed their vacation destination. Praise God for that and go get it and have fun. But think about how much money changes people. How many marriages do you know who have been, that, have, that money's led to divorce? Oftentimes because one person in the family comes from a more affluent family and money becomes a factor out of the gate. The the in-laws kind of dangle it over you a little bit. It comes with expectations. See people that maybe all of a sudden enter into a career that's gonna you know, give them a lot of resources and move to a city that's a little more hip and trendy and you know, wealthy and that kind of, people just change. Everything about them changes. All of a sudden their appearance changes, all of a sudden what they talk about changes, what upsets them changes, what they prioritize changes. And it can change your parenting, it, can cha it just can change so much and never does he say it's bad to have it, he says just please be really careful because it was never meant to function as a God for you. But we also see great encouragement of how those who have a lot can be faithful with what God's given them 
They support Jesus. They support the ministry. They use their money wisely for kingdom purposes. They want to further the ministry of the church locally and beyond. See, the righteous people who are rich in Luke are still rich, but they're also generous. They're repentant of things that happened in their heart. They're aware of it, and they're faithful to the cause of Christ. You see, in Luke, we also see God's heart for people who don't know him. We see God's love kind of changing gears. We see God's love for those who are far from him. Luke chapter 15, all the tax collectors and the sinners were approaching to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. The nerve. He's supposed to be the Messiah and he spends his time around people who are far from him, who are considered unclean in our culture, who are sinners. So he told them this parable. He goes, what man among you who has a hundred sheep, he's thinking of an agrarian society here, and loses one of them, does not leave the 99 to the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? It doesn't even make financial sense to do that, that you would risk the other 99 sheep to go find one, but to that shepherd who knows these sheep and has spent time with these sheep, that one sheep who's gone away matters. So he's willing to leave the 99 to go after the other one. And when he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. And coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. He says, I tell you, in the same way, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. He's like, you want another example of what God's heart is like? Or what woman who has 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, rejoice with me, because I've found the silver coin I lost. He goes, I tell you. In the same way, if you lost your wedding ring or or lost your cell phone, here today, you'd be back here this afternoon, You'd be searching through the chairs. You'd call, you'd find anything lost and found. Like it, it would prioritize your day. He says, in the, I tell you in the same way, there's joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. See, God is a shepherd who seeks after sinners. Like he's active in the process. Like his heart is one that cares about the one who is not with him. Jesus said this, the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost, Luke 19, verse 10. Earlier he said this, he shows his heart once again. I, he told them the harvest is abundant, Luke chapter 10. Abundant. But the workers are few. There's a great need out there, people who are lost and apart from God. But there aren't enough people to go and tell and to go and minister. He goes, therefore, pray to the Lord for the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Like this is God's heart. God's heart is for those who are not with him, that need to know him that are stuck in their sins, that are living for the gods of this world, and he pursues them. One of the points of that passage in Luke 15 about the shepherd and the person looking for their coins is God is even more than that. You think that they are passionate about those who are lost. God's, God's even more, and this is what causes joy in heaven, is this taking place. He also has a regular word for the Pharisees, those who are very religious, uh, in terms of outward appearance and the, I guess you could say the, the checklists that they have and the rituals they observe, but their hearts are often far from God. They look down on others. They trust and think that they are the standard of what it means to be righteous, that no one else is good enough or clean enough. And in that same story, 
in Luke 15, he keeps going and he tells a story about what's called the prodigal son, who is a son who has a lot of riches along with his brother, who comes from a family that has given him so much, and he decides that he wants to squander all that and he wants to rebel against his father, which in that culture to leave your family at this time and to ask for your inheritance was very disrespectful. It was almost like wishing, saying that someone was dead to you uh, back in the first century at this time. So this, this, this boy, this, or this a younger son goes out, lives for the world, squanders his wealth far from God, then he comes to his senses. Like many of us have in our times of rebellion. Or one day God wakes you up or one day you go, ah, this is not how life is supposed to be. That there has to be more than this. Like, we're not going to live our lives independent of the things of God. Like, we're not going to stay away from the church. We're not going to have a house where our kids grow up far from anything resembling the church. Like, that's not going to be us. Like, like, we come to our senses, but look what happened when he returned. We see in Luke 15, the father celebrated And he ran down right when he saw his son coming from afar and hugged him and he welcomed him home. But there was another son who was the good boy in the house, who did the right things, who honored his dad, who kept the checklist. And we see that in verse 25, now his older son was in the field and he came near the house and he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him. Your father has slaughtered the the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him, but he replied to his father, look, I've been slaving many years for you and I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. When this son of yours came who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, You slaughtered the fattened calf for him? Son, he said to him, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. This is Jesus talking to the Pharisees who gave him a hard time for eating with tax collectors and sinners. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found And little do the Pharisees know, maybe they caught on, they're actually the older brother in the story. You see, the younger brother rebelled against God by his lifestyle and his actions, but the older brother was just as rebellious, rebelling against God and his self-righteousness. We can rebel against God both directions. Notice God's heart. When the son comes home, it's not, oh, you're only changing because you got caught. It's not, oh, we'll see how this goes. There's a celebration that somebody's gave their life to Jesus and will trust God to do with the rest. He talks more to the Pharisees. The Lord said to him, now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and evil. I'm talking about their lives. Outside you, got, you are put together, but your heart inside is far from God. And then he just keeps going throughout the rest of Luke, warning those who have a lot about the danger of their hearts. Also speaking a strong word to those who are self-righteous, who judge everyone else, who are rebelling against God by simply thinking they're fine on their own, by their own rituals and their own good deeds that they're producing. Both of those are of great danger in the eyes of the Lord. 
And then as all the writers do of the Gospels, there's a, a really strong description of what happens during the week of Jesus' persecution. We see him come into the city. The people are, are declaring him to be, they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, like he really is the one. And then he dies, and then he is buried, and then there's the resurrection. And then we see Mary Magdalene, among other women, be, go to the tomb first to see that it's empty, and an angel appears to them and tells them what happened. There's a part of the story, though, that just really helps us kind of land the plane for everything that's been happening. So there's a road called the Emmaus Road, and some of his disciples, not, not the original 12 disciples, some of his followers, we could say, are on the road, and they're just sort of having a pity party. Why? Because they had put their hope in this one named Jesus and thought he really was the one, and guess what happened to him? He died. Just like everybody else who had come before him that claimed they were this and claimed they were that, he died. How embarrassing. We really thought he was the one. Like they, how, how, they, he actually, they actually say that. We actually thought he was the one who came to save Israel from their sins. And so, so they're, they're, they're mad, they're, they're sad, they're embarrassed, pity party. They got to get out of town. They're going to be mocked and made fun of. Like, we told you so, you know, kind of idea. He's dead. We killed him. There's the king of the Jews hanging on a cross. We put this, the, you know, he got buried, boulder on the tomb, the stone. And then all of a sudden, Jesus appears next to them walking. And we're told they were unable to recognize him at first. And Jesus, in his resurrected body, asked them some questions about what's the deal? What are you upset about? What's going on? And they told him, Here's what Jesus replies in Luke 24. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. What are the first few words of Luke? I'm writing to you about what's been fulfilled. And now here Jesus is at the very end of Luke and people still have it, hasn't quite clicked yet. He's like, well, what about the prophets? He goes, wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into glory? Like all the things from Isaiah that were read, the suffering servant, all the things from before, like having to slaughter a lamb and the blood of the lamb would be what would allow your sins to be atoned for. He's like, the blood of the lamb, not just to cover your sins for a little while, but they would be ultimately forgiven. And then Jesus goes into what's called biblical theology, and that's how all the Bible fits together, how it's one big story, which has been one of the points of this last year we've been doing, how it all really fits together, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. So you're going back to the first few books of the Bible, you're going through the prophets we've covered this past year. He interpreted for them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. He told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds, which God does in his grace, to understand the scriptures, to receive the good news. He also said to them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead the third day and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. As in, guys, I am the fulfillment. This was supposed to happen. Remember 
How short is your memory? He's saying, remember, the, the Messiah was supposed to suffer, was supposed to die, and here I am now resurrected, conquering Satan, sin, and death. It has been fulfilled. God's work has been finished here on earth, and we await just one thing to come, and that's the Messiah's return to make all things new. He doesn't just tell them to have this knowledge in their heads. He says, you are witnesses of these things. Like you're the ones who have seen this and I need to go and tell and make the love of God and his fulfilled, finished plan in Jesus known to the rest of the world because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. He goes, and look, I'm sending you what my father promised. I'm gonna send the spirit because you're not gonna be on your own. The Holy Spirit's gonna fulfill, gonna fill you to accomplish the task that God has assigned for you to live your life for Christ as his witnesses. You will not be on your own. And as for you, stay in the city. Stay here for now. There'll be a message. You'll know. And you'll be empowered on high. Then he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was carried up into heaven. He ascends into heaven to go fulfill his role of being our mediator, our intercessor, preparing a place for us. After worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple praising God. Why? Because all had been fulfilled. That there was no more priests they had to go through and system and reminded over and over again of how far they were from God. Now they actually had access to God once and for all in relationship as his children. Because Jesus paid the penalty once and for all. And now they anticipate his return again. But in the meantime, Luke would also go on and write the book of Acts. That's the start of the church. To now gather and go, gather and go, come together and hear the word and pray together and sing together. And then from there, to go into the world with the gospel. And what's our world? It starts in Tallahassee. And it continues to the ends of the earth. But the good news is that Jesus actually is the one he claimed to be. He says, you are witnesses of these things. How incredible. Warnings, grace, hope, promises fulfilled. The book of Luke. It's quite the story. I'd love for you to read it on your own. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for warnings that you love us enough and you care about us enough to say, be careful here, be careful there. So we do ask you to protect our hearts. Your word tells us to search ourselves and to see if there's anything in us that's unpleasing to you. So I just thank you, first of all, for living in a, in a country where we really do, a lot of us are able to do the things we want to do. Most of us in this room can at least do the things that we need. I don't want to take for granted anyone's situation here, Lord, so I ask that you tend to that, that you be with people in this room who have great needs today, that our church will continue to be a church that meets those needs for the members of our church and those in our community and other churches in our town with us. But Lord, for those of us who are able to get in cars today that have air conditioning and go to lunch after church and go work a job tomorrow, Lord, we know that when we have a lot it's easy to put our trust in those things. Lord, don't let anything of this world be what changes us. We want you to change us. Let our trust and our hope and our loyalty be found in Christ, the one who died for us and rose again. Lord, we know that your kingdom comes at the cross. Lord, help us pick up our cross and follow Christ as your witnesses in Tallahassee and beyond. We ask that as school starts back soon, as people start getting back in town and through our local community, through our college students in this town. Lord, I ask that you 
allow the church to flourish this year. This fall can be one where people plug in and where we truly get excited about growing together in faith on your mission and your love as your people. We need you. We depend on you. In the name of Christ, amen. Let's stand up and sing the good news, the finished work of Christ.